would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. Molly Ware heads up revenue production at the Infinite Monkey Theorem. I've long said that what other booze producers experience should inform and prepare us for what we face in beer. Molly was kind enough to step away from the highly competitive and unfairly overfunded wine industry to sit and answer my questions today. And I think if you listen to the end, you're going to be better for it. I asked her on the show to share the experience of closing three of their urban wineries. While the beer industry seems to think that tasting rooms will save the world, I fully expected that Molly would disagree. What I didn't expect was to find a person I respect. She has a competitive surfer strength and focus. She attacks her job the way I did. And hearing her talk intelligently about some of her struggles and successes with honesty and integrity was truly refreshing. So I honestly feel that I learned something important from my time with Molly, and I can't thank her enough for sharing. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, because if you don't, you're an idiot. So hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Well, Molly, I want to thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most of all for giving a very softened, fully embarrassing fuck about helping my guests be better in their careers today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm interested in talking today because you have a different perspective. Obviously, most people that I interview are in the beer industry, but I'm looking outside the industry on purpose because the perspective that I think you bring informs our perspective, even just knowing that we all play in the sandbox in a different way, but we overlap a lot. So you work in wine, you sell wine, and you run the revenue infinite monkey theorem. And I think the battles you fight and the hurdles you jump aren't that different than what we do. So this is where I would normally tell you that we're doing something different today, but I seem to always do something different. And so this is going to be a different way of doing something different. Anyway, long story short, um, I put out on social media that I was going to be interviewing somebody from the wine industry. And I asked, like, do you have any questions that you want to hear? So throughout the uh, interview today, I'll, I'll be dropping questions out that were from listeners and from fans. Oh, right on. Okay, so cool. Anytime you hear one and you're like, wow, that was a really intelligent question. It probably was not mine is my point. So. <laughs> 
But before we get into the story of Infinite and your commentary on the industry overall, I really want to hear kind of like what, who are you? What got you in the industry? Who were you before you were a wine professional? How far back do you want me to go? As far back <laughs> as you think is interesting. I don't want you to tell me anything that's not interesting. Well, let's see. I'll, I'll uh, condense 10 years really quickly. So I first got into wine, like I told you, um, working in fine dining through college under Sommelier. A uh, really great guy, um, Shepard Ross. He's a local restaurateur here in Houston and just a, a great wealth of wine knowledge. So after I finished college, I moved to California as quick as I could because my lifelong dream had been to be a professional surfer, which is probably most Texas surfers' dreams <laughs> back then. So I uh, moved out to San Clemente and I joined the Pro Longboard Tour and I surfed that for two, three years, traveled to Australia, Hawaii, all up and down the California coast, and really learned a lot and would say I hung my hat up on professional surfing after surfing a six-star event and surfing from the bottom of the barrel. I mean, I had to surf four rounds in a day. And so um, I lost in the fourth round to like some of the top surfers in the world at that time. So I was like, you know what? good enough. I'm good. So uh, it's the best at least. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, it was, it was good. It was good for me. And you know, like any industry, it was, it was just a little fake and not as genuine and I, as I had hoped it to be, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's fine. You know, like you live and you learn, you find things out and it's since evolved. I will say that. So then I moved on to big wave surfing, then stand up paddle boarding, then triathlons. And then I went broke and moved back to Texas. Six, five, six years later, I'm back in Texas trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of Texas as quickly as possible. Um, and I didn't. So uh, I got a job in advertising. I worked there for almost six years with CBS Radio and iHeartMedia. And um, it was a ton of fun, but I it wasn't my passion. It wasn't, you know, I was stoked on the lot. And um, when I lived in California, I worked in a tasting room. I obviously went out to the wineries a bunch. I talked to the distributors when they would come into our tasting room and the different winemakers. I've just always loved wine. I love how it brings people together. I love talking with people that are new wine drinkers and learning and understanding their palate, helping point them in the direction of wine that they might find new and interesting and have never thought about before. So long story short, uh, after advertising, I was looking for work. Infinite Monkey had a posting for actually the Houston Galveston area. And I grew up in Houston felt like I had pretty good roots there and knew quite a few people and I applied for the job and I got it. And six months later, nine months later, I'm helping run the whole state. And then almost four years later, I'm head of Texas and all of the East Coast. So that's where I am. <laughs> a lot quickly that way. Let's backtrack a little bit. Were you always a fan of wine be- before like you had that kind of seminal moment with the sommelier or was it just what did you drink before? I guess would be a good question. I was like a vodka soda girl. Like in my early 20s, it was like blueberry vodka, strawberry vodka and soda. But I was like, ah, it's just not doing it for me. And um, I had always tried mine. My mom is like into the buttery Chardonnays and I'm not into that shit. I can't like I I will if it is the only thing to drink, I will not drink a buttery Chardonnay. I won't. It was the first real white wine I had tried. And I was like, man, this is really sweet. It felt sweet. It's not technically sweet. And then, you know, I just kind of started trying things at work. Because that's what our boss wanted us to do. You know, whenever we brought in new house wines or wines by the glass, I shouldn't say house wines, we got to try them. And I just started to build a palette from there. And I, I never like had this desire when I was younger. I was like, oh, I'm so into wine. I just kind of like fell into it and really 
love the complexity of it and how it brings people together and the conversation started just like beer or bourbon or whatever. So the the varietal that sort of woke you up was a Pinot Noir, you said, right? Yes. Is that to this day your favorite? Uh, what's, what's the varietal that you kind of go back to? That's a good question because I hardly ever drink red these really? days. I am hands down a white wine drinker for sure. I love the old world wines, you know, from France and Italy and Spain. My go-tos right now are Cava, Orvieto, Gavi, and um, Albarino, which is South American. So, But I do love a good Nebbiolo, a good Côte de Rhone, a good Bordeaux, but mostly it, it's kind of got to be the time and the place for me when I drink those. <laughs> yeah, like with the right food and the, the temperature or whatever too. So did you have a favorite winery before joining Infinite Monkey Theorem? I'm not one of those people that has a favorite winery. I'm more into just I have a favorite wine, but my most fond memory of a winery is when I lived in California and me and a few of my girlfriends were up in Calistoga near Napa. A friend of ours got us this really fantastic tour through cake bread, cake bread wineries. And it was it was a really neat experience when I still think of fondly this day. I can't say cake bread is my favorite, but it's a favorite memory at the winery. And that's Russian River, right? Sebastopol area? Mm-hmm. My wife's aunt has a house in Sebastopol. And so my like kind of seminal wine experience was in 08. We stayed there for a week and just literally drank for a whole week, which you should never do, but had a yeah, blast. It happens uh, though. <laughs> yeah. So we, we did Napa sparingly and spent a lot of time in Russian River Valley and even up to Healdsburg and stuff like that. It was it was a cool experience, but um, I still always go back to Petite Syrahs and Cabernets because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a basic white boy, I guess, so whatever. But, Petite Syrah is a good one for sure. Yeah, those are some of my favorite wines. So at what point did you decide, I like wine, I want to drink wine? I guess a better question. You you saw the you told, you mentioned you saw the ad for Infinite Monkey Theorem. Why did you think you were qualified? Like I said earlier, I had grown up in Houston. I'd worked in the restaurant industry since I was 18 years old um, until I had moved away and knew quite a bit of people in the industry. And I was like, I know this place. I grew up here. Like, Hire me. I basically said that in yeah. the letter that I emailed Nikki <laughs> asking for the interviews. You know, sales is sales. It's just every no you get, you're closer to your yes. So I'm pretty fearless when it comes to asking and, you know, prospecting when I took the job. So, yeah, I think there's a few different sales careers that prepare you to over to deal with all kinds of objections and overcome just some of the most miserable experiences in the world and not to talk shit about it, but I think ad sales is one of them. <laughs> like if you can do ad sales, you can do anything. It is absolutely <laughs> correct. I mean, we basically sell ice to Eskimo. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I had a buddy that, yeah, uh, no. I think the late 2000s, he was still selling yellow page ads. And I was like, dude, come on. I mean, you could sell anything wow. if you can sell that. Like, you need to get out of that industry. You'll be a millionaire yeah, wherever you go. Yeah, sure. Kudos to him, though. He's still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> or what? I don't yeah. know if he is now. <laughs> no, it was like the, the whatever they call the, the aughts, I guess. The, like, it was like 05, 06, something like that. He was still doing that. So did it – and this one of those questions I ask, especially with the business side, people always seem to want to talk me out of any business I was ever going to do. But did anybody ever try to talk you out of going into wine? Were they like, dude, that's – it's a terrible business. Don't do it. Absolutely not. They yeah. were like, yes. So we will get some free wine. That's, that was exactly how it went. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, so you do that now? You just give everybody wine all the time and make it? I mean, you know, when I've got samples or I want people to start trying some stuff just to kind of like help push the brand, I'll definitely give friends and family samples. And, and you know, because everyone's got like weird hesitations against canned wine. I shouldn't say everyone. It's an incredibly huge category, but those that do, you know, I'm like, just give us a, 
give it a go. I mean, if you don't like it, you don't like it. It's not going to hurt my feelings, but you know, I'm very much of the mindset. Don't knock it till you try it type of thing. So yeah, yeah, I'm definitely handing out samples or, you know, sharing the wealth type of thing. Yeah. So we touched on like how ad sales prepare you to sell anything, but describe to me the difference in the sales process for wine versus ad sales. I'm just curious how you would, how you describe that. Ad sales was way more professional than wine sales. Um, <laughs> you couldn't be was. drunk. <laughs> yeah. You know, wine sales is like, we just want to move product and we want to get it for the cheapest price we can type of thing. You know, when I was selling advertising, I really was looking for a need or a call to action or, you know, kind of what could I bring to the table to this potential client to help them boost their sales, you know? And so it was a lot of Q and A and getting to the roots of what their need or goal might be. And then creating a proposal from there that you would hope would work for them, you know, because you never know how something's going to turn out because you can't, you know, you can bring a horse to the trough, but you can't make a drink the water type thing. So it definitely was a lot more professional, a lot more digging. Like with wine sales, it's for me, it's very casual. You know, it's like, it's more building the relationship and finding out what their customers like, you know, it's still that Q and A, but it's a little bit more natural conversation for me, you know, because I am curious what drives people's sales or what people tend to gravitate to at a restaurant or an off-premise location or what their seasonality is and stuff like that. So I do love doing research, you know, on a side note. So like for me to ask, to learn about your customer or your, your sales is interesting for me because then I'm like, well, maybe we can try doing something like this. You know, maybe we can put together an event or a feature or something. So it's much more casual to me selling wine. I wouldn't say it's much easier because unless you're (laughs) a big brand that basically sells itself like Babe or all of Gala's brands or Gallo itself, you know, like it's still challenging. <laughs> so I've told people a few times, but one of the experiences I had is I, my wife and I used to own eight fitness centers. And so I've sold thousands of health club memberships and my teams have sold tens, tens of thousands of health club memberships and not one single person we ever sold to ever wanted the product that we were selling. They wanted the results they were going to get from it, but it was always this right. uphill struggle of like, how can we, again, like do the research, qualify, lose the lever. There's always a promo. How do we get that person to do it? And with beer, conversely, every single person wanted what we were buying. And so there were still objections and still things that were different, but so much mm-hmm. easier in the scheme of things than selling, you know, fitness or, um, you know, ad sales, same thing. At least, at least with ad sales, there's a direct ROI typically, or you have spreadsheets to show that, but definitely it's not an easy game. So tell me a little bit about the concept of infinite. Like, obviously I have looked online. I kind of know the idea. I've got a couple of wines I'm going to open today, but what is an urban versus rural winery and what does that mean? And what does it mean to the consumer? So an urban winery is a winery that is basically in the heart of the city and meant to be accessible to all the people around there. Um, You typically don't have your own vineyard. So you source your grapes, you purchase your grapes from other vineyards or your bulk wine, whatever you're using at the time. And like us, we produce and bottle and distribute from our winery. We do everything. We don't outsource any of our producing or packaging at all. Everything's done in-house as opposed to a winery that's got its vineyards and its tasting room attached to it, which is typically on a large plot of land that's not close to the city. We want it to be accessible and approachable. So that's kind of where we got the started the urban winery and we were just kind of counterculture. You know, we didn't want to do what every other winery was doing at the time. So 
Yeah, I think that was clear that that was a big part of in the beginning, which we'll talk about him in a minute. But Ben was just trying to disrupt the industry overall. He's like, if whatever they were doing, he we're going to do it different. <laughs> so. He was, and, and he did a good job at it. So like, let's take it back to like a, a brew pub, for example. It's an interesting switch. So the typical winery model or traditional, let's say, would be to have rural property. You'd pay less per acre. You can grow your grapes there. And then your tasting room is there. So you would effectively pay less rent than you would being in an urban market. And so you guys kind of more like a brew pub flip the idea where you're bringing the grapes into a more densely populated area. So it's going to be more expensive real estate. And so the, the model has to change a little bit in that point too, right? So when you were making wine in Texas, you were doing that at the urban winery. So like the actual, you Correct. had enough square mm-hmm. footage to do it all. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm going to definitely dig more into that in a minute and kind of how that worked. But since that's so different uh, and you're on the sales side, I'm curious, did you find that to be a struggle to convey not necessarily what that was, but why that was a value to the customers or or do they even care? Like, I'm curious. You know, people were curious. I wouldn't say many really cared one way or the other. From a sales perspective, I liked it because it allowed us to bring distributor reps into the winery and entertain them or you know, new clients we brought on or loyal customers that we've had. It it allowed us to really have that space to say thank you and entertain or do whatever that was close and easily to get to, as opposed to, you know, going out to first Texas terms, going out to the hill country to a winery, you know, and worried about driving after you've had a few drinks and stuff like that. But as far as it being an urban winery versus a traditional vineyard winery, no one really it didn't affect their decisions one way or the other. I mean, most people thought it was pretty cool, actually. So Yeah, urban just sounded more fun, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and since you're in a bunch of states, I'm curious, does, is that a challenging thing to explain to distribution? Like, are they are they buying into that concept? Do you have to do a lot more education? Uh, no, I mean, it's an easy thing to educate them on. They honestly, and I'm sure you know this, distributor reps are so overwhelmed by the brands they have to sell. Mm-hmm. And so if I can just make their job easier by providing information and quick explanations of what we are, who we are, what we do type of thing, it's helpful. But no, it's not the urban because it's it's not so foreign anymore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not hard to explain to the distributors at all. When you came up with a cool, or I think is a cool like four word way to say it, like no vineyard, no pretense. And so to the consumer, then that, typically means hopefully that I don't have to be a snob to drink it and maybe it won't cost as much as the snobby wine next to it. Is that sort of the concept? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. So JD McBride actually went on our Facebook page and his question in this category was, do they make their own wine or another that purchases their product from a manufacturer and why the choice? And so you do make your own wine in-house, but you could have custom crushed and had somebody else make it completely and then bring it into the urban area. So again, JD's question, why the choice? So we do make our own bottled wine. Like I said, we do purchase the grapes to make the bottled wine. We then our original founder and winemaker and Tim, the assistant winemaker at the time, both would make the wines, Colorado. And then Aaron, who was running our Texas location and the team would make the wine here. (laughs) So yes, we actually made the wine in-house for our canned wine. Because we sell so much of it and move through so much of it, we actually buy that in bulk from California and Washington because we feel like we can get the most consistent juice to go into the can. So it's not because wines vary from vintage to vintage and 
you know, depending on how the growing season was. So it can be slightly different year to year. But for our canned wine, California and Washington uh, have the most consistent growing season for the canned wine. But all of our bottled wine is made in-house. And quite honestly, it's in the name. So infinite monkey theorem is a chaos theory that if you put monkeys in a room in front of a typewriter and have them just typing away at the keyboard for an infinite amount of time, they'll come up with something like a Shakespearean sonnet. So we are making order out of chaos. You know, to disrupt the industry, you have to do things that are hard and bringing grapes in and making them in the city and producing and distributing them is is not always easy. So yeah, a lot of variability to it. Yeah. Yeah. While you were talking about that, I went ahead and opened the 2009 Riesling because it's 1230 on a Thursday. Why why would I not do that? So can you tell me about it? So the Riesling, this is our bottled wine. This is actually Colorado grapes and is one of our local favorites up in Colorado. Honestly, I think it's a really easy Riesling to drink. So it's a dry Riesling. So for those that aren't familiar with Riesling, there is a dry Riesling, semi-dry and sweet Riesling. So yes, not all Rieslings are sweet. So this is a dry one, but it's got really good floral notes on it. It's light. It's bright. I think it's an easy drink to drink by the pool on a hot summer day or by the river in your case. Uh, it also pairs well with any sort of like Thai food, slightly spicy food. So yeah, it's a, it's a fan favorite up in Colorado and Total Wine liked it enough. So they brought it in too. So <laughs> That's where I got it. So yeah, I picked this one up at Total Wine and then uh, I also have the Syrah, which I'll open a little bit later, but I think that one is Texas fruit from 2017. The Riesling? No, the uh, Syrah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I was like, we didn't make Riesling in Texas. <laughs> no, it was 2018 actually. So Okay. <laughs> so one of my favorite Texas varietals is uh, Vignet. I just enjoy what they do with it here. And this mm-hmm. is a, like a little bit fruitier version of that for me. And I am not a wine sommelier, if I can stretch the imagination. I know what I like. That's about as far as I can go. But this is good. I and that's it. what any professional knowledgeable sommelier will tell you. They were like, look, I can tell you all about this $100 bottle of wine and tell you it's the, you know, all these points and awards. But if you don't like it, it doesn't mean shit. So. Yeah. Well, I like that it has a little bit of complexity on the back end too, which some of the Reese's when they're sweet, that always takes that kind of finish off and all you get is sugar and it just, it's boring as shit. So this one's actually good yeah. enough that you know, with a cool salad, I think even some specific uh, funky goat cheeses, I could have fun with that. So it's good. Yeah. Right on. All right. Well, I'm going to continue to drink this, but let's take a quick break. And when we come back, what I want to get into is a little more of that logistics of how you guys make the wine and um, what products you make. And we'll go from there. Right on. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, welcome back. So I finished the first class. I'm happily on to the second. So let's talk about been a little bit and obviously he was the founding guy who really sort of set infinite monkey theorem on the path that it's on obviously i think he did he leave before you started no he was there for six months of the time that i was there okay so you have kind of an idea and obviously he i'm sure has a reputation throughout the business but do you have any idea like how he learned to make wine and was it something different and unique and is that why he was so different and unique or i'm just curious i don't know if he was so much different and unique i know he did and does have 
a passion for wine and winemaking and his background in winemaking where he got his start, I believe, is New Zealand. But excuse me, I know when he started Infinite Monkey Theorem, you know, he he had worked and grown up in that traditional wine arena where, you know, the vineyard's named after a family name or an estate and it's kind of stuffy and not very like welcoming to outsiders or people that aren't necessarily familiar to wine or new wine drinkers. And I know he wanted to disrupt that, like we had said before. And when he was coming up with IMT, he didn't want to name it after himself. And obviously we didn't have an estate, so it wasn't going to be named (laughs) after an estate. So he wanted something that like stuck out and was memorable. And that is how Infinite Monkey came out. And it's a theory, you know, it's a chaos theory you know, we are an urban winery and we bring everything in. And so that's kind of how it started. So, so I'm sure there's a variety of different answers to the question, but do you know like why he left and what, like what happened? There were some changes afterwards. So clearly there were some things happening, but yeah, you know, this, like I said, I only knew worked with Ben for six months and only worked with him in person two or three times. And I never had any issue with the guy. I know there were other internal issues going on, lots of moving pieces. I no, I don't know specifically why he left. And honestly, I'd prefer not to know. Doesn't but matter. Uh, <laughs> he's still an investor. He's still making wine in Colorado and he's good at it. So, yeah. Okay. So wh- I read an article when he had left and one of the things he had said is that he felt like one of his most proud, proudest moments or proudest accomplishments through the winery was to get more people to notice Colorado wine. Again, I am a very... I, I could tell you a whole bunch of Napa wineries, even up on the hillside. I can even go into some things in Texas. But ultimately, I am not an expert on wine at all. But I have, before today, I don't know if I've ever had a Colorado wine. And I'm not really sure what that Tarah is like and what does it do. So I'm curious if you could, how is it different? What are they known for? Sure. Um, I, I don't know if it's different from anything. So if you're looking at a map of, of the world, you know, latitudinally, I believe it is, is, you know, it's right there in that same space as Bordeaux, if you're looking at the map, you know, across the the globe. So we have a lot of the same type of growing. We, Colorado has a lot of the same type of growing season as Bordeaux and France does. So some of the varietals that do really well there are the Cab Franc and the Riesling and the, um, the Sauv Blancs and stuff, a lot of those type of wines, because you've got Cooler climates up because Grand Valley is where a lot of the wines are made in Palisades. So, you know, it's 4,500 feet elevation. You've got East Sun, you've got West Sun. So it, it's it, it's very similar to that in, in France. And then also some of the Central California growing vineyards down there. So I had heard that Colorado recently is becoming competitive with Napa as far as popularity and people going to visit the wineries. I don't know that to be fact, but they say that in Texas yeah, I, too, that the hill country is like little Napa. I'm like, I don't know about that, but, but we know how proud Texans are. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the only Texans tooting their own horn. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I think he did do a good job of, I don't want to say exposing, but just bringing Colorado, that the fact that Colorado makes wines, you know, he was, had a hand in that and opened people's eyes that there are wines in Colorado besides just pot growing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, are there varietals that stand out that just like, uh, and I'll give you an example. So obviously we know about Cabernet in Napa um, and even Chardonnay to an extent. Um, Texas does really well with pretty much anything from the kind of Mediterranean area. I know they definitely have Tanat is like our one big grape that does well. 
I have yet mm-hmm. to have a Cabernet I thought was worth a shit, except for one. Yeah. But So there's different things. Tempranillo has kind of become that sort of standard Texas grape that does well. And Merved, I would say, mm-hmm. probably represents our Tua better. Is there something like that in Colorado? Like, I, And the only reason I ask that is completely selfishly, I would like to pick a bottle of that up. So. Yeah, no, for sure. So definitely, I would say the Cab Franc and the Riesling are, are very good representations of Colorado wine. We make a Malbec, we make a Savion Blanc, but I think the Cab Franc and the Riesling are good representations of those. So, Okay. Well, I will definitely look into that. I didn't have a Cab Franc on the menu at Total Wine, but I'll definitely go look for one. So I know. We need to talk to Total Wine about that. <laughs> yeah. At once Ben left, who took over? Like, who, who makes the wine now? Tim Cannon is our winemaker, and Tim worked for years under Ben while... I shouldn't say under because they, they work together. I don't want to say under. Tim is, is a great winemaker and... God bless him. He puts up with five women every day at work. So he he's our current winemaker and is doing a great job. He really learned a lot with Ben and, and even on his own, he's learned a lot going up to Palisade in the Grand Valley. And he's, he's great. We, we really couldn't do it without him. And also he's got someone helping him now, Nick. So those guys are really the ones that help us crank out all this stuff. So thanks guys. <laughs> and did he change the focus? Was there a new kind of artistic direction on the wine side or just kind of continuing what was already there? We're continuing what's already there, but Tim likes to experiment. So in the last year and a half, we've experimented with whiskey barrels, gin barrels. There's something we were looking at doing. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But yeah, we're definitely experimenting more. Unfortunately, those will only be sold in our tap room up in Denver because they're going to be in this such such small production. But yeah, we've tossed around the idea of maybe a pet nat, but that that would be way down the line. But currently, it's just different barrels, aging wine in different barrels, types of barrels. So, Well, since we're talking primarily to a beer crowd, uh, do they have any plans to do anything with uh, marshmallows or milk sugar at all or any of that kind of thing? <laughs> That's a funny question. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know how that would work in winemaking, actually. That might be something fun to experiment with. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be. It would be the death of your industry. Don't do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first if you don't listen to me. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, one big question I had is that soon after Ben left, Nikki got promoted to, uh, to CEO, and she'd been there since 2014. And she made some big changes on the culture. I was just curious if like kind of your perspective, what was going on there and and what she did. You know, when I first started with Infinite Monkey, it was, it was kind of like our, our, our name. I mean, it was, it was chaotic. There was (laughs) not very clear communication goals necessarily weren't clear. Like, I mean, when I first started, it was trial by fire, which is totally fine by me because I I'm down for a challenge. Clearly it worked Um, in your favor. Yeah. (laughs) But when Nikki came, it was like the air, got lighter. You know, it was almost like there was a lot more communication happening. Our goals were more clear. We had a new focus because the brand has looked the same for the last 11, 12 years. And, you know, now that we're run female owned and operated, we really wanted to reflect that. And so Nikki's really big on giving back to the community. She works with Canned Aid, which is the bike in Colorado. It's a bike building charity um, access opportunity and a lot of smaller local charities in Colorado. You know, we have plans to, in the near future, create a wine that's going to be like puppy dog focused that we're going to give back (laughs) to shelter dogs because we're all dog lovers. But she just wanted the brand to be more connected to the community. And we want the community to know who we are. And they feel, you know, kind of like the cheers thing, you know, where everybody knows your name, like 
we want to have create that atmosphere of like just community. So well, I know when she took over, there seemed to be a few articles and some statements that were made that I was like definitely women empowerment. And mm-hmm. on our side in the beer industry, there has definitely been like this huge sexism movement, particularly over the past year, year and a half, a lot of stuff that had come to light. But do you see like that kind of almost like patriarchal bullshit happening in the wine side? Is that something she was reacting oh, to yeah. or is it? Honestly, like I, it was that way prior to me coming into IMT. I didn't experience any of that, but I know it was that way. And even just in the wine industry in general, for whatever reason, the older dudes think that women are not capable of doing shit. And that is very wrong. I honestly, my surfing prepared me for that. Like I have grown up surfing with dudes my entire life and have had to been like hard and like aggressive out in the water and show guys like I can fucking surf this wave. Don't fucking drop in on me, you know? And so it's like prepared you for that in the real world. Don't talk down to me. Don't walk all over me. Let's have a conversation. We're on the same level here. And even if we're not on the same level, let's respect one another. But I see it more from like the older generation or like the good old boys or the frat boy type frat type boy. I don't know if they're all frat boys, but I fortunately have not experienced huge sexism. And I know a lot of women do, but I have not myself experienced a lot of it. So just from the outside being in, I would have thought there'd be less of that in wine. But as soon as I said it out loud, I was like, that's probably not true at all. Kelly, you're being yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. Well, so one of the things she did like soon after taking over was a, that like the big rebrand. And it was an idea to change even just the not really the logo, the monkey's still there, but to put a woman on the label or and yeah, a woman on the label and kind of change the message. Like, did that work? And then I'm curious, how was it received? And like, I'll backtrack a little bit. So rebranding is one of those things that's always a humongous pain in the ass. I should have done it twice in my brewery and I didn't. Uh, I should have completely mm-hmm. changed the name at one point, but I'm just curious how it worked for you guys. But you're right. It has been a process. It's been a couple of year process. With Nikki at the helm, we are super team focused. And so the changing of the packaging and the rebranding was really a team effort. I mean, we were having calls about it every week, reviewing the graphics and changing little details. And um, we think we've come up with something really elegant and classic and classy, not classic, very art deco. And so to be honest, the only new package that's gone out in the market completely is our Malbec and it already sold out. So we're having to bring in more bottles and wine to produce. So the Malbec was received really well. I can't speak for the cans and the new bottles yet because not all the cans have hit the market. They'll be fully in the market, I would say, by May and the bottles mid to late summer. So, But I have shared all the designs with distributors or accounts I go to and all of them are like, wow, this is awesome. Or even at events I'm going to, you know, I tell people this is going to be our new packaging that's coming out. And the women, of course, love it. They're like, this is so great because that's our target. That's our biggest target. Women buy the majority of wine. Surprisingly, a lot of guys are responding well to it. You know, initially they're like, oh, but we like the monkey. And I'm like, oh, but you're not actually buying my wine. (laughs) So, (laughs) so far it's been really well received in the outlets that we've shown people. I can't tell you how well it's selling yet because it technically hasn't been selling in the market, but uh, fingers crossed that it's going to be, you know, when you, when you have a brand that's got longevity and people know it, it's established, but then it does a refresh and people think it's a new product again. So I'm hoping that they see us on the shelf and they're like, Oh, this is new when it's actually not, it's just infinite monkey. And 
be inclined to buy it again. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Well, I think were some of those new products though too, like the, wasn't there Bellini and something else? Were those new or just redesigned? So we've had the Bellini for a couple of years. Okay. And it, that one's always done really well for us. You know, we dabbled in the wine spritzer. I don't think it was as well received as we were thinking it was going to be, you know? So we're like, let's just stick with what we know. <laughs> so I'm curious to see how that kind of like plays out. The fact that the Malbec sold out is obviously a good sign. One of the big questions I had, this is one of the ones I, I did all the names. Have you have you ever heard like this, this stupid name that somebody threw out for a product and it didn't make it through? And so, thank, so you never actually used it. But I'm just curious what one of the dumbest names you guys have come up with was. Uh, we actually haven't come up with any dumb names because we usually just go on varietals. Okay. But that being said, my brother did tell me about a canned wine that he heard about recently called Campaign. So like C-A-M-P-A-N-G instead of champagne, campaign. Wow. I, know <laughs> I was what? like, gotta love it. <laughs> and it'll probably sell the shit out of it at the, the gas stations. I, I went online. I looked up, I think it was your LinkedIn. So on, on there, it says you order the bulk wine. Do you do that also? Yes. So Nikki and I both work in that arena. She's taken over it a little bit more now. But yeah, we work with bulk wine suppliers out in California and Washington. They A couple of them have just been awesome. So we kind of order on an as needed basis at the moment, but we do also, we will sign, you know, six months contracts on wine that we just, we need to constantly have coming in monthly. So, so they allow you to order it. Like cause they're still harvesting and crushing once a year, but then they store right. it. That's actually really helpful for cash flow because that's been one of those things with wine that I've always looked at and say, I just don't understand the amount of financing you must have to buy everything once a year and then budget it out for the next 11. It's crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, big wine suppliers, they will, they will purchase the wine before it's even made. They're like, you know what? I need your new vintage and I need all of it. But the way the bulk wine suppliers work is they work with a lot of different wineries or they even have their own winery, you know, their own vineyard. And so they are able to produce and get a lot of wine, a lot of different wine. And, you know, they're really good about letting us know what's available, how much tonnage of it there is, what's the price on it. So you don't necessarily have to make a six month or year commitment to so much wine every month. Do you guys typically do the same varietals year to year? Or does that change based on what they have available? And the canned wine, it's always the same varietals. Okay. For the bottled wine, it just depends on how many, how much we can get out of that growing season. So what's available. Like this year, we're doing Cab Franc, Malbec, and Sauv Blanc. You know, in years past, we've done those three varietals in Rosé or Chardonnay and Syrah. So it just is kind of depending on what's available and honestly what we can afford to purchase for that year too. So since we're not growing our grapes. (laughs) Right. Well, so that was one of the next questions I had is during the pandemic, the cost of grains went up dramatically. And part of that was shipping, but part of it was just the raw cost also. And so I was going to ask you, whether the grapes have gone up dramatically in price. And one of the people who I happen to know over on the East Coast, he had asked me to ask you, Aaron Gore, whether raw material oversupply issues play a role in price drops. And I'm curious, I I didn't think of it that way. Was there more supply of grapes and bulk wine during the pandemic? That's a really good question. I'm not sure because our sales had slowed so much during the pandemic that we weren't ordering as often. I know generally speaking right now, the wine industry has been struggling. And even though you're in the beer industry, you might've heard that about that anyways. 
a lot of it's due to climate change. A lot of it's due to the fires happening. They're not growing as much as they had in years past. And so the wine industry has already been dealing with a shortage prior to the pandemic. But I can't say if there was an oversupply of raw material during the pandemic. And on our side, I know a lot of suppliers, the like the top 100 suppliers, did really, really well during the pandemic because everybody's drinking at home. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if bulk wine suppliers were busting their ass and making a lot of sales as well. So, but as far as the price increase, we've seen it across the board. I wouldn't say I've seen a huge increase in our materials that we use, you know, the grapes, the uh, bulk wine, or like a lot of the items we use, like the cans and the, the, the caps and bottles and stuff. There's been a slight increase in all of that overall, but it's been an increase like we've done. You know, we've increased our price by 10% because the biggest thing is, you know, is freight. Freight is killing everybody. It's, so and it's not coming down. It just doesn't seem, they're just like, oh, screw it. Everyone's paying it. We'll just keep it. Exactly. Exactly. So that's really where we've been hit hardest is with shipping and freight. So another question that I have was you, you did mention that you do six month contracts sometimes. Is that not normal? Do you normally just, they've got inventory, you can order it. You don't need to contract out two, three years in advance. Correct. Correct. So we work really closely with one bulk wine supplier in particular like out of California. Uh, we've got a good relationship with them. She knows what we need a lot of times and is really good about letting us know when she's got availability for it. So our biggest thing is a storage. We don't have a ton of storage to store all that wine that we would, you know, if we're getting it a year out, we don't have a place to put it. So that's a lot of times why we're ordering month to month or every other month. But like, for instance, our keg wine, which is a sparkling wine. We do purchase bulk wine for that, but we move through that. We can't even keep up with the demand. So that's something we would sign a six month contract on to make sure that we're getting it monthly. So we're not running out and having to tell distributors like, Hey, your PO is going to be late again. So. Well, that was definitely an industry industry issue for beer. was that with hops, there were people who were having to sign three to four year contracts just to get certain varietals because they weren't available. That's crazy. And, and there's no way to, I mean, I, you're full of shit if you tell me you can truly project what you're going to be doing 24 months from well, now. That, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, who knew we were going to be in a pandemic at the end of 2019? <laughs> yeah. Changed completely. So one question I have is you, you used to make Texas varietals back when you guys were located in Texas. You don't use Texas fruit at all anymore, right? No, we don't. Not since we've had to close the winery. The two varietals that I think we did the best were the Tempranillo and the Viognier. So like, I mean, as you know, the Viognier grows really well here in Texas. Even Becker made a good Viognier. So the- <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so did you, did you like any of those Texas wines? I'm out of curiosity. I, I did actually. I like our Tempranillo and I liked our Viognier. I liked the 2019 Viognier. I didn't like the vintage before. And then honestly, our Tempranillo has been really consistent since I've tried it throughout the years. So- I feel like Tempranillo is kind of hard to mess up, but there are wineries that still don't make it that well. So I was just going to say, I, I can attest to having tasted ones that they have messed up. So it's possible. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear you talk about everyone's favorite topic on this show to complain about, which is distributors. And hopefully you're going to be the okay. one person who doesn't complain. <laughs> So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. 
Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You got a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, welcome back. So I poured myself some Syrah that I got from you guys, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But first, I want to talk about how you guys go to market. So obviously this is your wheelhouse, this is your job. My understanding is that most wineries kind of have a specific target of distro versus in-house sales. And part of that's because you know you, you harvest grapes once a year, so you've got to really have a business plan that's pretty gosh darn locked down. And if all of a sudden you start selling more to distributor at a minus 30 points or minus 60, depending on how the numbers work, you just, you're not going to make the year. So I'm just curious what kind of that split is for you guys. Do you have a goal or do you have a, or is it just sort of organically become a thing? The latter. It's definitely, <laughs> it's, it's more organic. As you know, we're, we're a very small company. We have five full-time employees at corporate level. I say corporate <laughs> in quotes there because uh, we're not corporate at all, but we do have a lot of online sales and taproom sales, which are pretty significant for us. You know, I wouldn't say they're half of our sales, but they're a good portion of our sales. But definitely distribution is where we make our money with our product. For me, when I go into the market, you know, it's very it's super grassroots, honestly. I'll like pack a cooler full of wine <laughs> and I'll pick an area of place that I know has a bunch of, you know, maybe bars and restaurants and I'll just kind of go in and ask for who the decision maker is and leave samples for them, you know. Which is interesting as I'm saying that out loud now, it's changed since the pandemic, you know, like. You couldn't go in for a while. They wouldn't see you for a minute. Exactly. And now it's like, now that the pandemic's over, it's like, they still don't necessarily want to see you, you know. For me now, it's more, I'm not prospecting as much as I used to because I'm handling us on such a bigger scale now in multiple states. But, you know, my prospecting now is when I'm out to dinner at a restaurant, I'll look at their wine menu. I'll inquire about what's doing well for them and let them know who I work for and if I can drop off some samples for them, you know, that sort of thing. And tell me if you ran into this in the beer industry, sometimes, and it's frustrating as all get out, like the buyer will buy what they like, not thinking about what their customer is mostly drinking. It is well, the most common great. issue we deal with like, <laughs> overall. And it, it, and I think beer, and I, I get some sayings from the outside looking in, but I think beer is typically the guy managed or girl managing a bar was normally like the lead bartender that kind of got moved up. And so there's not a lot of training. There's not a lot of like manuals about how to do this. But when you would talk to somebody who would buy for the customer, there was like a fucking relief. It was amazing because it's so rare. It's so rare and so refreshing. You know, I'm, I want to sit there and talk with them more. I'm like, so how did you figure out what your customer is like? You know, did you do tasting events or what'd you do? You know, like, so I can share the knowledge with someone else who's just buying because they want to buy what they like. So right. yeah, that's a challenge too. You know, it's like the buyer buys what they like. And if they don't like your wine, you're kind of shit up creek without a paddle. So one of the questions one of uh, my listeners had was guy, Blake Murrah. He, he, he want to know if you had a wine club. He said, do you have a wine club in any form or fashion? Which I assume this means, do you have one at all? We do. We do. And again, that one is evolving. We've actually gone into our chambers of wine and we're kind of putting together all the wines that we've had laid down, sending them out. So I can't say it's going to be long lived or how it will evolve after we've gone through all kind of our vintage wines. But yeah, we do have a wine club. 
okay. <laughs> to answer your question. And so the, from the target market perspective, in my opinion, I think this is the one of the, I'm most fascinated to kind of learn how you manage this because it seems to me if you're doing varietal named wines in a bottle, Syrah, and then you've also got Bellini in a can, that your your target market is fragmented. You've got a bunch of different targets, it sounds like to me. And I'm just curious how you manage that. Or, or is it one person? And again, I'm on the outside looking in and do they all drink these same things? It, I'm interested to hear. So elaborate a little bit more for that on that for me, why you see it as, as multiple targets. Well, in general, so the, the bottled product on the shelf, 25 bucks for a Merlot, that's, that's getting eerily close to the, you know, stuck up pretentious guy who wants to have sure. a bottle of red and tell his friends how smart he is. Cause he can tell you what the tannin count is. And then the person drinking a Bellini on out of a can on the lake while they're um, surfing behind the boat, that's a different person. I, I to my, in my opinion, and I'm again, I could be wrong. So. Yeah. That's, that's actually a really great question and something to bring up and something, honestly, I haven't thought about because in Texas and with the states I deal with, it's so much can focus. I don't really sell the bottles as much anymore, but I, I definitely see what you're saying. So the can is definitely, the idea of the canned wine is it's good wine for you to take somewhere that you can't bring glass. Mm-hmm. Um, it's So we want you to be able to take it to the beach, the river, to the lake, hiking, whatever, just anywhere you can go to a concert that glass isn't a great idea. But then we also want you to know, like, hey, we're not just making canned wine. We also actually take time and energy and thought into making a really good bottled wine or as good a bottled wine as we can make. So you're right. We do. We have our main target, which is our female demographic, you know, young professionals, anyone in college, any adventure, any female, whatever, 25 to 54. That's really our our number one target market. But then we want to reach the other people that aren't necessarily into our cans, but want to try something that's unique, like a Colorado grape. So I guess you could say we do have a couple of different targets we're trying to hit. So Yeah. So my question was just going to be, who are they? Who do you think is your target market? And that you kind of said that. So uh, interesting. So because you guys run the gamut, do you have a leader? Like you mentioned that kegs sell out faster than you can make them, um, that primarily in Texas, you run cans. I'm just curious, like, from the business, there, there seems to be three kind of product lines, I guess, and, and do all of those. Is there a clear winner? I guess would be a better way to answer that. For me, it's the kegs. I sell a shit ton of sparkling kegs. And um, it was something I saw coming when I first started in the business because we would get questions for keg wine. Mm-hmm. And so Tupelo Honey has been a huge, wonderful national account for us and has really helped as a success story and selling the keg. So we're one of the very few wineries that put sparkling wine in a keg. So brunch, as you know, brunch places cannot go through enough sparkling wine. in one day, I mean, yeah. they will have cases and cases of Wyclef or J Roger sparkling wine. And so what we've done is taken the element of storage and waste and, um, you know, lack of inventory space and put the sparkling wine in a keg and just made it easier for those types of places to move through more streamlined on in their busiest days. So I sell a ton of sparkling kegs. And like I said, we can't keep up with the demand. The cans go through their season. So I'm not selling a ton of cans. I wasn't selling a ton late fall and winter time, but now we're into spring, into summer and stuff. And you're starting to see the sales pick up there because people are going outside and, and doing things. And honestly, 
another reason we have done the rebranding of the cans is the canned wine category got so saturated during the pandemic. Everybody came or right before, really, because in my mind, you know, it was us, Underwood and Sophia that were the top three canned wines in the market the last few years the, before 2019, I would say. And then we just got smothered. I mean, we got lost in the sauce. But prior to that, like we would be selling thousands of cases a month of our of our canned wine. And then the, the category got saturated and we kind of got lost in the sauce. And so now we want to come back into the picture again and be top of mind. And we're hoping that the new packaging will help with that, too. So I, I learned in my experience that that makes way more of a difference than I think it should. But uh, the reality is it matters. But yeah. But I want to back up the kegs just a little bit. So logistically, when I know when uh, keg wine first came out, you had to use uh, essentially inert gas. So it was nitrogen, what people had access to. You could do argon when you packaged or whatever. But so you guys are doing a sparkling keg on CO2. Like you mm-hmm. can hook it up to a regular beer line and go or is it? Beer line. Yep, that's exactly right. And we use the Sankey D coupler. So it's not anything, you know, random or unusual that you have to use to hook it up at all. But we do recommend you make sure that you use a new line or that your beer lines are completely clean before you hook it up. So <laughs> you don't want like an Imperial stout on there beforehand or no. <laughs> yeah. And then there was another guy here in Texas. I think Vinovium was doing these like kegs that had a bag inside. And so you could still hook it up. So that's a pain in the ass. So that's pretty simple and convenient for you to be able to send that out and they can just hook it and go. And so the other thing I was going to ask is with beer, we primarily a lot of breweries I know at least started with the keg model and the per ounce uh, revenue target and then looked in the package and like where did that sit and we all kind of found that package was a stupid idea which is why I didn't even do it in small format for eight years I think maybe yeah it was eight years and the reason was I just kept doing the numbers and I'm like I if I'm gonna make six dollars a case so that my distributor can make 14 I'm not into it I'm not doing that but with wine the ones that I had seen is that the per ounce price from bottle to keg was damn near the same. And so technically the winery was doing really well with it. I'm just curious, does that work that way for you guys? And For the most part, yeah. I mean, when I've had to break down what the ounce cost is and the keg, it's pretty close, you know, to what it would be for a unit in the can, the case of cans. So it's pretty, it's pretty darn close. So I would say it's a little cheaper, but it's not much. So yeah, but you have no loss too. So there's that once you've opened it. You don't have that worry about like now this isn't going to go, this is going to go bad or whatever on the full bottle, especially. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned you have a small team. What, uh, what does the sales team look like? You're the boss of all the salespeople. How many you got? <laughs> so there's me. Then there is the wonderful Melissa who is up in Colorado. She came on the team. I think it's been a little over two years. She and I really handle majority of sales. There's Lindsay who helps with our accounting and our graphic design who also has a, um, she has her own business on the side too called Runaway Bride. And it's a mobile wedding dress fitting business. So she has a whole bunch of samples and people make appointments and come to her or she goes close to your area and you get fitted for wedding dresses. So that's our accounting and graphics person, Lindsay. We have Jocelyn who helps with our social media and scheduling events at the tap room. We've got all our bartenders who work the tap room. And then we've got Tim and Nick down in the winery making wine and canning and bottling and kegging for us. And then, of course, our fearless leader, Nikki. So, okay. 
Well, so let's focus on the sales get people for a minute. And so how you manage that. And I have to assume that with wine, it's similar to beer, if not maybe worse. In the fourth segment, we're going to get into sort of the numbers and how many wineries they are and what that competition looks like. But I have to assume that you hear the same thing that I heard every single time I walked into a chain restaurant or I'm sorry, a train chain retailer like HEB here in Texas. Yes, I'll give you a placement. How many tastings a month are you going to do? Yeah. How many tastings a month and what's the lowest price you can sell us to? <laughs> so how do you logistically manage that? Like how with beer, I made the argument many times and I, I did the numbers and I've talked to some other people who did those tastings and I tried to figure it out. It was zero way to be profitable. The, the, the amount of runway you were going to have to make, I mean, you're going to have to sell a pallet while you're there to make, because we have to pay for the beer over the counter at retail for everything that we open. Ah, which makes it harder, okay. but how does how do those numbers work for you, and and how do you do that? in, again, I don't have the list in front of me, but let's say say, say South Dakota. You're, how do you how do you do that all over when it's just two of you people? So we work with demo team, or not a demo team, brand ambassador team. I prefer to call them here in Texas, and they I reach out to them and schedule all our tastings and demos that way. And they've got a really good team because it's hard to find good brand ambassadors and people to be out in the market tasting and they've done a really good job with whoever is doing our product. They educate them on the product and they do have to purchase the product from the store typically, you know, but it's not, it's not a ton of stuff. It's, you know, a couple four packs of whatever varietals we're tasting. And, you know, we cover the costs of that sort of stuff, but for something like HEB, if we're on their planner, you know, they use their own inventory there for the demos. But I'm working right now to schedule some stuff with them on the store level. And so we'll provide the support for that. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you, the demos. And I've talked about this with some of my chain account managers. I don't think they're that great. Honestly, I don't think they work that well all the time. Because unless you're making the sale right there, you can't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. What's your thought on doing demos and store demos? <laughs> I, I think I think HEB can eat a dick, but I'm not yeah. in the industry anymore. So the, the, the problem is what what I have seen, and I've actually talked to distributors that showed me some of these numbers, is that once you get in the cold box set that you've got a hurdle rate you've got to hit. And so whatever that weekly number is, it's two units, four units, whatever. They had brands who literally hit the hurdle rate by their rep buying the product to sample. And so what they were doing was maintaining cold box placement. They're just buying it. I mean, it's literally the same thing as just, hey, how about I give you a hundred bucks a week and you give me a cold box placement. I don't have to show up and I can sleep in on Saturday morning. So I think that the model overall is garbage simply because it's just a way around pay to play. It's the same concept. Yeah, yeah. I, I And I struggle with hitting those goals and I don't get feedback on how to always improve them because it is such a numbers game. It's just, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to go around all the stores and spend my own money just to. Well, at some point it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if you could, right, if you're going to spend a hundred dollars a month, but the ROI is three X, five X, then it makes complete sense. But that's correct. I couldn't tie it to a growth in sales. and, And I did that. I would say the the only time I would give you a caveat is I do believe that in-store samplings help a lot to release a new product in a market. So Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. We had released a product in Houston and I literally just did a run of every total wine and like the big uh, HEBs and a couple of the specs that all kind of worked. And that helped to get the brand off the ground, but would it have done it without it? I don't know because I didn't do it that way. So I 
we'll see. No, and I, I agree with you because that's what was made helped make us so successful in Texas initially is we were new to the market and, you know, we still were one of the very few canned wine items and we were the new shiny thing and the demos helped tremendously. But as far as like helping sustain your business, I don't know how effective they become after that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Unless you've got something new, like you said, in your portfolio, I just don't, I don't know. Yeah. I have a love hate relationships with demos. <laughs> when some stores aren't that bad about it. I know there was a period, I don't know if they're still doing this, but I think it was 17, maybe total wine. I'm not, uh, I'm sorry. Whole foods in Texas had just decided that you were no longer going to have rep driven samplings and that you had to go through their ambassador company who didn't know your product and whatever. And, and the pricing was ridiculous. It was like $200 a sampling, which again, for a brewery with a super low margin product that doesn't have a lot of, I think your four packs are like 13, 14 for your cans. Uh, 14. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're selling a, a six pack of beer for eight bucks, like it's just, it's going to take a long time to hit that investment point. Just, it doesn't make sense. And so anyways, in those situations, I think that Whole Foods definitely had screwed that one up, but I, I don't know if they continued it because I just I stopped going there at that point. I, and I do like them quite a bit. I still like to shop there, but I stopped going there to sell beer. I should clarify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but so you got in this industry in 2019, and uh, again in the fourth segment, I really want to get more into the kind of the growth and how that played out in wine versus what we've seen in beer. But there's 10 percent more wineries than there were when you started. How has that affected your job? You talked a little bit about the the canned wine competition, but it's got to be across the board, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like, first off, I feel like I'm always learning something new in this industry. Like there's no shortage of learning, but I feel like the fact that there's, there's more wineries I haven't noticed particularly affecting us. What's really affected us is existing wineries trying to come into the canned wine scene Mm. uh, because they have the name that's recognizable. Like decoy came out with the wine spritzer and I'm like, why the hell is decoy making a wine spritzer? They made a push. All of a sudden you started seeing their stuff everywhere. And it was, I think might even lower the price. Well, and decoy is also seen as like kind of that mid to upper level quality of wine. And then you want to put it in the can and it's kind of like, okay, what's going on here? But yeah, it was more existing and new brands, you know, like, uh, Bev and babe. God, I hate babe. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) what else is one that came out house wine? House wine's mm. pretty good, though. They're a good canned wine. But, you know, it was more the canned wine category that exploded that really hurt us. And if it wasn't canned wine, the seltzer absolutely crushed us. I mean, I can't. I mean, the amount of seltzers that came out during the pandemic blew my mind. I mean, I don't want to say it killed the canned wine category, but it definitely squashed us for a little bit. So, Which is interesting because... obviously the concept of seltzer is less flavor and less um, interestingness, like lower points, lower points of differentiation, as I would normally say. And so I would think if you were still drinking wine, but doing it in a can that you at least thought that you cared about flavor. But if you just switched immediately to seltzer, you clearly do not. Well, and here's the thing. I think this is part of the reason that it hurt us so much is canned wine and seltzers were grouped in the same space in most off-premise places. Oh, really? Have their own category. You know, the seltzers weren't closer to the beer and the canned wine wasn't closer to the wine necessarily. It was all kind of in one grouping. And so, you know, the seltzer is this new shiny thing, right? Hmm. So let me try that. That That's part of the thing that I think. Well, and honestly, 
the marketing behind those seltzer brands, unbelievable. Like we don't have that marketing budget. So yeah. Thanks White Claw. Well, you're, you're at least starting to see some weakness in that industry. And I know like Willie Superbrew just announced that they were like in deep shit this last week. And I think that's a example of what's to come, but uh, every brewery did it too. Like, so you talk about the wineries that all went into cans, all these breweries who were making mediocre beer just started making probably like less, Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> all this, but they're just taking that cachet, right? Like, okay, well we can't grow this market share, but the Bud Light name is well-renowned let's make this product and see how that works. And exactly. I think to their, to their credit, I think it worked, but no, definitely didn't uh, didn't help you guys either. No. <laughs> well, from the distribution perspective, which is what I was going to ask you about next, one of the things that I saw, so like one of my products that was doing really well was kind of a niche product. And then another the brewery in San Antonio came out with a much less flavorful and good version of one. And my distributor in New Braunfels just said, oh, well, we were with them first, so we're going to put their product out front and would do... Uh, store samplings with it they did like a stack and like they clearly supported that brand more so over mine and i'm wondering did you see some of that too where the wine that xyz distributor was doing well with like you know did they just say well you know we have promote that riesling in a can over yours or whatever i see that all the time all the time and mostly because the supplier is got a goal for the team to hit their big supplier Mm -hmm. and they've set a goal and incentive that they need to hit these numbers by this, by the end of the month. And so, I mean, we've always taken a backseat to stuff like that to bigger suppliers or, or better well-known brands, but in in Southern Glazers defense, I, I wouldn't say in the company as a whole, but there are a good amount of people that I work directly with that are like, Hey, we really root for the smaller brands like you. So we're, we're here to help you. So thank you to those people. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how do you navigate that? I mean, you were some big ones like Southern Glaciers, RNDC, Breakthrough. Those I would think would probably behave a little bit differently than some of the small guys. But one of the ones I looked up, you guys are with Cavalier and I had considered going with them and they're heavily beer. So how, do, how does that work being one of the only wine people in the hev- heavily beer portfolio? So we aren't actually in Ohio anymore. Okay. Um, but to that point, we are actually with Johnson Brothers in Iowa now, who is more of a heavily beer-driven distributor. And it's interesting, they are way more stoked to have something else to sell, sell besides a craft beer. So That's an, um, another fucking hazy IPA. Like, yeah, yeah. So they're like, you know, they're really on board. And like, I got to say, they've been great, quite honestly. I mean, because they don't have all this other competition of wine they're trying to sell or all these goals that they have to hit. Um, so yeah, I, I would say I have thoroughly enjoyed working with um, Johnson Brothers in Iowa because they're not overwhelmed by other brands in the wine category. But as far like we do work with Southern and RNDC, those are our top two distributors we work with. The way I combated is offering as good of an incentive to the sales rep as I can, you know, and unfortunately or fortunately, Southern has picked up uh, Constellation brands and their whole team, you know, they've moved people around. And so I don't know a lot of the new sales reps that have taken over and have those relationships like I did before. So I'm kind of, I'm working to get to know who the new sales reps are and building those relationships and letting them know that I'm available here to help them. You know, like I'm not going to badger you to hit a number each month. I just want you to help me get my brand out there again, (laughs) type of thing. So just make a difference. (laughs) Yeah. Let me help you. Let me, you know, what is that? I'm having a brain fart. Help me. Help, help me you. help you. Yeah. 
Well, so you mentioned that uh, you it lost a distributor, and that was one thing that I wanted to ask you about, because once you get to 30 states, you've always got three dogs and three winners. So when I was in multiple states, I think I had all dogs. I'm just kidding. There was a couple that were good. Yeah. But when you get away from somebody and when you move from one place to another, I would estimate that I probably lost you know, $15,000 to $20,000 every time that happened, uh, at least. But And that's just in hard money, not necessarily opportunity costs. But how how do you guys recover when that happens or or was that like a mutual thing you saw it coming you'd already moved away and maybe you hadn't sold there for a year i don't know but um, what was that like it, it's a couple of things so texas for example we had started with rndc in texas and then moved to southern glazers and that transition happened before i had taken over mm-hmm. um so i can't speak to that but there's been states where we've needed to open up distribution and we had distributed in the the state before and the distributor straight up would not work with us again because of previous relationships with people at infinite monkey and whoever was at that distributor at the time. It was just some bad blood, Yeah, which is frustrating because you're like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. I'm trying to rectify everything. Um, if you can't help us, can you direct me to someone who can? And they are like, fuck off. We're not hmm. here to help you at all. But the states that I have opened up distribution, I've opened five new states, I believe. They've all been pretty easy. Like, you know, I, I try to be as, as upfront and honest as possible. Like, I'm not here to yank your chain or anything like that. I just want us to have clear communication. I want us to be on the same page. But I tell you what, you probably know this, opening up distribution in other states and making sure you have the proper licensing and you're set up correctly with pricing and everything like that can be it can be a headache at times, um, especially when you're working with controlled states. So I had my first rodeo with the most challenging controlled state in the U.S., which is Pennsylvania. And uh, I have since started to figure out everything. The team up in Pennsylvania has been great and very helpful, but it was very, it was a very big learning curve. Let's just put it that way. The rules can be a humongous pain in the ass. And sometimes almost intentionally, it feels like made oh, for you to not be able to sell product. 100%. 100%. It, it's it's ridiculous. But overall, I think opening distribution in the states I have has been a fairly easy process. It's really just understanding all the licenses you need for that state to open up there. Yeah. Well, I think there was a, in Texas, you had to, if you're self-distributing, you had to report your uh, retailer sales to the comptroller. And there was this way to do that. But when we were a manufacturing brewery, you could you could do both. And then once you were a, a brew pub that sold other people's beer, you couldn't. So during the pandemic, I changed to doing guest beer because we needed to for the business. So I stopped self-distribution in like July of 2020 or whatever it was. And so obviously I stopped telling them that I was distributing to retailers because I wasn't. And I got a bill uh, last week. I think it was last week for $92,000 for failure to report zero numbers to them for a year and a half. There's nothing to report. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. It was actually illegal. We we get a few bills like that, and we're like, what the hell is this? (laughs) So Obviously, I'm not paying it, Comptroller. If you're listening, you can fuck off. But, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, anyways, let's let's take a quick break. We went along on that one, but I was enjoying the conversation. And when we get back, I want to talk a lot about the ton of tasting room model. That seems to be one of those things that breweries think will save the world and i disagree and i'm curious to get your feedback so yeah i'm curious your feedback too on that why they think that (laughs) you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out 
That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to accubrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, Mike, thanks for sticking with me. This is actually one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about was you guys have had some tasting room struggles, which I think is immensely fascinating because if you had asked me to invest in the beginning, I would thought this is a fucking great idea to do a winery in an urban area to compete with bars and restaurants. To, to, and, and so anyways, craft beer seems to think that tasting rooms are the wave of the future for us. And that's definitely throughout the industry. Everyone's talking about like no more distribution, sell it all on site, got to go to a, you know, a, a dense urban market and whatever. And I completely disagree. I'm curious based on what you saw, because it looks like in the beginning, it was primarily on-premise oriented. And then the distribution mm-hmm. was sort of a second plan. Yeah. So we were, when we first, definitely in Texas, I can't speak to Colorado because I've, I've handled Texas mostly. We were you know, it was a 60-40. We were 60% on-premise and 40% off-premise. I, I think on-premise is tremendous for helping build your brand. And especially if you're on a buy-the-glass for wine, if you're on the buy-the-glass type of thing, or, you know, you're in barbecue joints or taco joints or whatever, you can just buy the can. Like, it really helps to build your brand. And in turn, that created the demand for the off-premise. You know, people wanted to know where they could buy it. And, you know, they could buy it in our tap room, but not everybody can make it to our tap room and not everybody lives in Austin. And so right. um, that's where the demand came to be an off-premise as well. So um. so let's talk about the tasting room part. And like, for example, the Austin one, we'll just do a little, little history and tell me if my dates are off. But Austin, I think, opened in like 2016, South Lamar, cool spot uh, next to the climbing gym. And was it Cosmic Cafe, which I think is one of my favorite yeah. coffee shops of all time. Mm-hmm. I love that place. But then it moved, it decided it needed more space and it moved to 11,000 square foot building right about the time you started, 2019. And so it was right, right about then. And, and there's an article I read that said that they were trying to make more wine. So theoretically, I guess the question is, was the production outliving or outgrowing the space? Was that a problem? I'm shaking my head no. <laughs> the record shows she's shaking her head no. No, I, I still to this day wonder why we left the South Congress uh, location because it, in my mind as an outsider, I thought, wow, this is a great location. And yes, we did move to a larger production space. And I think they were thinking that we were going to start producing a lot more. And granted, the tap room did have two of its best months ever right before the pandemic hit. But yeah, I don't know that the production space was warranted the move, honestly. In our old space, we had two tanks and we added just one more tank in this 11,000 square foot space. So in my mind, like, don't, don't fix something if it's not broken. And I didn't see our original location in South Congress as broken. Now, granted, I had just started with the company. So I could have been missing something, but I think we should have stayed where we were. And I think they thought that East Austin was going to, you know, gentrify a lot quicker than it, than it has. So definitely did. I'm no definitely growth out there, but 
I don't think sure. it was dramatically more growth. And I, I can't imagine the rent was dramatically less or however too. So so between the first time the first one opened in Austin, they added two more locations up in Colorado. And then the Stanley one opened in 17, also closed in 19. So it looked like the kind of the urban model for doing the tasting room wasn't working. And I'm curious, did you do you know what was happening there? Were people just not going? Were they not staying, not spending? What was the... So for the Stanley market, from what I have learned is it was opened as, as a fun adventure. Our lease had expired in 2019 and the sales were not as good as we had hoped from my understanding. And so we just opted to not renew the lease. And also at that time, that's when there was the changing of leadership. And anytime there's a change in leadership, there's going to be financial loss. And so, you know, we had to look at what we could cut or where we had to cut our losses in order to to keep the company still thriving and doing well. Let's see, Fort Collins location closed in 2020 after less than a year. That was a decision under Ben. And of course, Ben was no longer with the company. And it was a tough location to manage just in general because it was 60 miles away from the Denver location. So, oh, sure. and then COVID hit. So it just, you know, you, you've barely been open and then you have a pandemic and it's just, it wasn't sustainable, so. Before I ask you the question I want to ask you, I love to go and look up reviews because I think that most of the people that leave them are mostly ridiculously stupid and probably have a IQ of less than 100. And Scott here um, made me, it, this is why it warmed my heart is because it, on the outside looking in, you think that there's going to be a better class of person drinking wine and there probably is, but Scott's not one of them. <laughs> and so I just want to, do you want to read his review or should I read his review? I'll read it. Yeah, go for it. Um, I was interested to read this. Actually, Scott M said, "Of is this the Stanley location we're talking about?" It is. Yes. I believe. Yes. The worst place. This is the worst place I've ever been to. They have a great rooftop patio. However, don't allow you to have any other drinks from the other eight food places in the court. Totally ridiculous. And when they told us to go downstairs, they wanted their glasses back and didn't even offer a plastic cup. What do you want us to drink at all? Or do you want us to drink it all at one time? So I have a couple of responses to that. <laughs> um, now, granted, I hadn't been to the rooftop bar, but I do understand how a lot of businesses work. And technically, you are legally not allowed to bring other drinks into another restaurant unless there is a shared common space for all the restaurants. Well, there might be have. certain states you can do that. But like in Texas, for sure, you cannot. Bring oh, hell yeah. no. Yeah. Uh, maybe in Galveston on the Strand, you can do that. Uh, I think you can go in with it, like, though. I think you can go out with it. I don't think you can come in. You can go out with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Orleans, for sure, I feel like, is one of those places you can just do whatever the hell you want. Ridiculous that we ask for our glasses back because they're glass and we don't want you taking our glasses. Unless you want to pay for the glass, you know, finish your drink, pay us eight bucks for the glass and go ahead. But yeah, that was a, that was an interesting review to read because it's not like we were being assholes. We were just kind of following the rules. <laughs> There was a period in the beginning of this podcast where I would go look up online reviews and, and I would have the brewery owner read them and we would laugh about them. And to be honest, they just started getting so similar and repetitive that I just stopped doing it. But this one was too good to pass up. So we had to read it. So, no, I, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. I was like, wow, he probably wrote it after drinking a lot too. <laughs> yeah. He went somewhere and had vodka shots and then decided to write yeah. that review. Yeah. All right. So anyways, the, the point was the, the beer industry has everything that you're seeing currently. And uh, just in case people listen to this later, this is 2022. Uh, Post-pandemic, uh, when the distribution piece of our industry just skyrocketed and a lot of guys were doing three to five X what they were doing before. We've now realized that with all the competition that there's no room at retail and 
the margins are shit. The pull through just isn't quite what it was for everybody. There's definitely people still winning, but now it's how do you make money at home? You've got to have your tasting room. You've got to sell it over the bar, blah, blah, blah. And I'm curious, clearly that didn't work for Infinite Monkey Theorem for a few reasons, but what as a company, you're also not opening three more this year. So would you agree with that, that tasting rooms are the way to make money going forward or would you not? I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. That's for sure. I, I think if you're okay, just breaking even, sure, just sell out of your tasting room. You know what I mean? Because you really pigeonhole yourself to a, a certain location and, and, you know, however big your radius is, of, that's what you're, that is all you're going to sell to. And unless you're doing online sales, but um, I, I think a tasting room is a great place to showcase your wine and talk with people that work at the location, you know, maybe even the the winemaker, beer brewmaster and people that share your love and passion for beer or wine. But no, I don't think that is the the way of the future by any means. You've got to be flexible and adaptable to situations and only allowing yourself to sell from one location is not that way, in my opinion. Yeah. So my comment to most of those people is always like, I, for me, that the if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that multiple streams of income are the only way to stay alive. And that absolutely when, when the tasting room gets shut down by some stupid government regulation, what else you got? Or if distribution shuts down for some market forces, then you've got to have a backup plan. And so I, I firmly believe that the only way to really be successful is to do multiple, do them well, and have some a variety of different streams of income. But what do I know? So Christopher, one of my listeners, said, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name because I'm going to totally screw it up. But he said, when you, when did you know it was time to close the, the tap room? Like I imagine it wasn't profitable. What was the business decision? How, how did you know at that point? I assume he's talking about Texas or he's, is he talking about all of them? Any of them, which obviously you said the Stanley one, the lease came up. So that was pretty obvious. It probably went up a little bit and it was not viable going forward. Fort Collins, we had just recently opened in 2020 and then the pandemic hit and it just was not, it wasn't going to work. Texas, that was a hard one for us to to let go of, honestly. Um, we had a really good team that worked the bar in Texas. We had a great bar manager, Shanna, who I miss always, but just a great team. And we we wanted to to stay open for them because for them and our customers, you know, we were pretty, we were a good staple in Austin since we'd open, but it got to a point where, you know, we'd open and we paid the staff more money than we were making in the night came, you know, that started to be a reoccurring thing. And our to-go sales were just, breaking even. So you, you've got to do your, you know, your grief to dollar ratio type of thing. And we weren't making any money anymore because of the pandemic and the open and closing. And we just moved into this new space that was double the size of our previous location. And it was just a lot of different factors that were not coming together to make us successful. And ultimately we knew what we had to do. And it sucked because, you know, that affects other people's livelihoods. So, you know, we did our best. We, we gave them, they saw the writing on the wall, but we also gave the team down there like, look, Hey, we don't know how much longer this is going to be happening. So please, you know, we understand if you need to leave your go find other work or whatever, you know, we, we get it. So that was a hard one for us though, because it had done so well in the past. And like I said, the team there was really wonderful. So, but sometimes the writing's just on the wall at a certain point. Yeah. So, so how did that look for you? Obviously, as a revenue producer, 
this is the, the time in many companies where you lose your top performers because by you know nature of the beast, if you close revenue producing facilities, you're going to lower the overall revenue and potentially your paycheck. And so how did, how did you stay positive through that process? That's a good question. We did lose uh, revenue because we didn't have the tasting room like that for us, going back to your point of having multiple outlets to make money or multiple streams to make money, like having that tasting room helped push our sales in the market, honestly, because people would go to our tasting room and then they'd buy it an off-premise or they'd ask for it in the restaurant or bar. So for me, I I saw the hit immediately. But fortunately at that time, we were such a skeleton crew. I was handling Texas and had also started handling the entire U.S. at that point, all the states that we had. So I was able to supplement what I would have lost in Texas with other states, but it, it was an immediate Notice. I mean, I saw it immediately. The sales dropped. I was positive because I had a freaking job during COVID, which a lot of people didn't. So I was tremendously grateful for that. And I'm a pretty adaptable person. And so I was like, you know what? This is just a new challenge. This is this is our current situation. And how are we going to get through it? Well, so on the same note, uh, a lot of people I talk to in this industry, it, it's a grind. There's no we can we can sugarcoat it all we want. It's a grind. So after three years in this industry, what techniques do you use to combat? burnout um, other than alcoholism, which I know a lot of people use. <laughs> yeah. I love that you asked that question because recently I've just, I feel like I've plateaued recently because, you know, I'm not prospecting as much as I used to be. I just needed that fire lit under my ass again. So a lot of times what I do is I go take wine classes. Like there's a really good school up in Houston, uh, the Texas wine school, and they have all sorts of different wine courses, you know, just two hours, you know, one day, two hours in the evening. And I love taking those courses because they get me like energized over wine again, because you're talking with people like-minded people and you just, you, you feel that charge again. And I love doing events. I love being out in events and talking with people about our products. So I've got a few events lined up. In the next couple months, some continuing education, but like burnout is real for sure. Like just because we work in, you know, the wine and spirits industry doesn't mean like it's all like fun and games all the time. It, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the fun and games are hard to enjoy because of the other parts. But yeah, it's yeah. why we get in it, right? We get in it because we, we love it and it's fun, but uh, it can definitely take its toll after a while. Back all the way up to the beginning, let's say some girl walks up to you, she's making wine at home for five years and she wants to open her own winery. What's your advice going to be to her? I would tell her, if I was her, I would say, go find someone that you admire that can mentor you. Go in the industry somewhere and understand how the industry works. I mean, I know it's hard in Texas. It can be. I mean, not unless you live in the hill country, but I would say, go learn more and learn under someone who really knows what they're doing. And have them taste your product and help guide you and critique you. Right. Or you know what? If you don't give a shit, just go and open something. And which seems to be the, care the way wind. many people do it. <laughs> yeah. right. One of the things I really want to ask you about. So there, there's 9,000 breweries in the United States now, and I made the argument back when we had 5,000 that it's not an argument. I made the insight that it's true that back when we had 5,000 is about the part that we peaked and. We've had very little innovation outside of some you know, goofy products that probably shouldn't have existed anyways, but the proliferation beyond 5,000 has only shrunk market share to the point that now, the based on production, the average brewery has a third to a fifth of the market share they did in 2017 per brewery. Though wine hasn't quite had the same growth, but it has bigger numbers. So in I think in 2017, 
there was like 7,000, now there's 11. So how many is too many for wine? Like, are you seeing a competitive landscape that's untenable at some point, like I do with beer? I think we're at that point, honestly. I think there's too many options. I should clarify, that's domestic producers. That does not count all the imports. I don't have any way to count that. Yeah, no, uh, import and domestic. I, the There's too many options. You know, it's like if you're given too many options, you feel overwhelmed and you, you usually end up not picking anything. You're not as inclined to try something different. You just go to what you know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As opposed to if you had fewer options. No, I, I think we're at that point. For sure. Everybody wants to be a winemaker or brewmaster these days, you know, or distiller. Everyone wants to do something in, in alcohol, it seems like. So what do you think the solution is? Like, I can't imagine we're going to have a 20% correction like we should. What do you, no, what do you think the next no. four years holds? Like, how does, how does that growth rate slow down? Or does it, I guess, a better question. I think it will slow down a little bit. I don't know how much it will slow down. What I feel like it comes down to is the actual product. Is the product good enough that people are going to make repeat sales? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like with the seltzers, you know, you're starting to see the ones that are going to stay and the ones that aren't staying. It's a little different with wine because the category is so giant. But I, I don't know what the solution is. I think people are either just going to run out of money and some of them are going to close or, you know, maybe someone in the family that's kept the winery going is going to pass away and the next generation isn't going to want to maintain it or, or continue with it. You know, I think it's just going to be some sort of change that isn't necessarily forced. I don't know. It, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I think some of them are just going to close, honestly. Well, th- so this is pure speculation and we do not have the answer, nor do I care. But where do you think the money's coming from to fund people to stay alive now that are not profitable? Like where... There's so much money coming into the beer industry, so much money going to the wine industry. Where the fuck's it coming from? Drugs? Like, what, what, where, where are they going? <laughs> Shoot, I know a lot of these, like, suppliers that we don't know how they're staying or, or staying open are usually owned by a bigger supplier. So they're just mm. having money. Or some of them are just someone's side project, someone that's, like, a trust fund baby and just has fuck ton money and they're this is just their side project you know what i mean i feel like there's a lot of breweries like that someone just has got a ton of money or they came into a lot of money and it's not an issue you know what's funny so i don't know if you've heard of allstadt out in fredericksburg the german one right quint well it's american made but german style yes but okay yeah what do you call like shrine to the owner right it's way overbuilt a fucking i think it's a castle it's an actual castle and when they first when they first came out it was terrible beer but it actually is some of the best beer in the state now, now, because they got the right brewmaster and they spent the right money. Took them a while to do that, but to their credit, they're doing fantastically. They have the re- resources and revenue to do that. Some of the smaller guys obviously don't. So there's a bunch of mediocre beer over there. But yeah, that's a great example. I, I, the guy does not have QVC, but it's something like that. It's that kind of money, mm-hmm. like, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, one question. So Chancellor Greider, guy I connected with on uh, social media a while back, he asked, is wine friendly towards other competitors in their industry? And I'm actually really curious the answer to this one. So and what does he mean by friendly? Like, I guess I, and I'm going to paraphrase what I think he means, but he's in the industry. He's a brewer. And when we started, for example, in 2011, it was all of us against all the three of them, right? It was every brewer, there's 1,500 of us. We're going to go arm in arm. We're taking Budweiser down over the next decade. And that shit stopped. It became very obvious in 2017 that there was no way that was going to happen and that we were all in deep trouble. And we turned on each other in a way. And mm-hmm. so we started cannibalizing others, each other's tap handles or you know, you'd see people buying out the, the shelf at the grocery store. And so we're not really friendly anymore the way we used to be, but we still are friendly-ish. Mm-hmm. Well, compared to fitness, which I was in before, we're Jesus and Mary Magdalene, but... <laughs> 
anyways, go ahead. Okay, no, that's a great question. Thanks for that question. I, I can't speak to many winemakers. I only know ours and Ben, and like I said, I didn't work a lot with Ben, but I know that Tim and the winemakers that he works with are very friendly towards one another. Like they, they love to share knowledge with each other of what's working and what's not, or if they've tried something new, you know, they'll share that with one another. You know, it, it, it's almost, you know, Tim is, as far as winemaking goes, is, is hungry for knowledge and wants to learn and do a really good job. And, you know, he and a couple of the winemakers I know that he works with and, and, and talks to are very friendly with one another. You know, it's not, I don't see that competition there with them. I know it does exist for sure. But, um, but you know, people forget that like when you work together, you're more successful mm-hmm. and we forget all the time. You know what I mean? But cash is king. So and it's easy to do that when everyone's struggling for the same dollar bill, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to ask three more questions. And I'm going to get you out of here. I know you got stuff to do today. So who do you think is more of an asshole? Me or you? Uh, that's situation dependent. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll give you that one. So tell me what's next for Infinite Monkey Theorem. Like what's on the horizon? What are the changes, plans, whatever? We want to rebuild a really strong foundation again for the company. Under Nikki, we are definitely solid. I mean, we're definitely team focused. And like I said before, communication is clear. And we all want what's best for the company. And I think that's going to benefit us in the long run. We're super excited about the rebrands we have coming out. Nikki, myself, Melissa, Lindsay, we all are actually creating our own label for a wine that we're going to That's cool. make, I say in quotes. Uh, we won't actually make it, but we are creating the label and picking the wine that goes in it. So that'll be sold in the tap room. So that's exciting. We want to do a really good job at selling pretty good wine in a can. <laughs> I, like, I so. like that concept. I, so I didn't open one of the canned wines, but I did get some. So I will be doing that this weekend and I'll uh, send okay. you a text. And give me your legit feedback. I, I Good, bad, and ugly. I like it all. <laughs> all right. Well, one of the rules I always have is that if you, if you don't ask, I might, will likely not tell you. But if you ever ask me what I think, I will never lie to you. So keep that in okay, mind. Okay, good. Fair <laughs> enough. So where does everybody find uh, you guys online? What are the socials and the webs and all that? So you can purchase us online at theinfinitemonkeytheorem.com. We're on Instagram at infinite underscore chimp. We're also on Facebook at the Infinite Monkey Theorem. And yeah, shoot us. Shoot us a message, buy our wine, give us your feedback. I mean, we can't be better unless we know what we need to improve. So, um, yeah, yeah. check well, us out. And I'll link all that in the show notes. It's a, it's a rare opportunity. I get to link somebody who's still in business. And so I'm, I appreciate you sharing all that stuff with me. Yeah, that's so, rad. Everyone who listened today, I can assure you that that is getting a ton of great information. And we talked about this off air a little bit, but what you were able to share today was in some way validating the struggles that we have in beer, that we're not alone and that we all kind of go through it. But it was also interesting to hear that you guys have different struggles and, and different issues that are unique to your industry. And long story short, I had a fucking blast and I really appreciate you spending time to talk to us today. Yeah, likewise. This was good. I, I'm stoked. All right. I'll be looking forward to checking in with you in the future. So have a great one and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book. 
which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com, or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better, and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media. Media.